Today's guest is Tom Doyle. Tom's a former priest, uh, a researcher and expert in all matters relating to sexual abuse of children uh, within the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, an expert witness in, in many court cases, including the Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse held in Australia, um, and more on that shortly. This is a difficult topic, and it's a topic that the UK column has been involved with for many years. Uh, we started off looking at uh, the issue of sexual abuse of children via state institutions mostly, and the cover-up of that abuse by, the, by state organisations, by courts, by police forces. And um, we concentrated on several cases, such as the Holly Gregg case, uh, and um, uh, to illustrate the broader problem. This brought us into a world where we were interacting with a great deal of, a great many victims of abuse, and we were attending conferences and, and, uh, and, and doing talks and, and, and hearing a lot of uh, work that was being done to, to publicise the abuse, to bring it to light, and to start to uncover what had been happening. It was in connection with this uh, that Brian Gerrish, uh, my colleague and founder of the UK column, came one day to give a talk in uh, New Lanark in Scotland. And it was on the subject of child sexual abuse. And we came to the Q&A and um, a, a sort of enormous man stood up in the audience, right? Big gentleman, uh, well-built, silver-haired, um, aged, well, in his 60s. And he introduced himself as Pat, Pat McEwen. And he explained that he had been an alcoholic for decades, uh, but he was no longer an alcoholic because he, he'd reached an understanding about why it was that he, he, he drank, why he relied on alcohol. And the reason was that he had been abused as a child by the Roman Catholic clergy. And he told us a little bit about that, this. I sub subsequently got to know Pat very well. Um, and the abuse that he suffered is it, it, it's of a scale that had I not heard him personally describe it, I might have been very sceptical because the scale was horrendous. So he was, as a small boy, groomed, um, raped by the local priest uh, on a regular basis over uh, a period of two or three years. Um, the priest in the, was in a community where he was trusted. He was the authority figure. He was the trusted person. Nobody doubted the goodness of the priest. Um, and then he, then little Pat, aged eight, was taken away to uh, a, a place called Smilem, Scotland, a large mansion house uh, on the Ayrshire coast, uh, not far from the ferry from Ireland. And uh, he was kept there overnight. This was meant to be a treat, a holiday, um, being singled out by the priest for, for this attention was viewed very well by his family. And they left him there without any idea that he was in any risk at all. And that little boy uh, was gang raped by at least 20 priests that night. Um, and this obviously, this, this, this huge period of abuse 
had a devastating effect on him and on his later life and his relationships and marriages and and it went through to a point where in his late 50s he wanted to talk about it. This often happens with survivors of abuse. It takes decades before they're ready to describe what's happened. And in his late 50s he started to talk about it. He went to the press. He started to speak about what had happened. And the local uh, Roman Catholic uh, bishop uh, basically went uh, into the press and made public statements um, calling him a fantasist and a drunk and all of this and and um, and and, and criticising him, criticizing him publicly. Uh, Pat stuck to his guns. Um, he still re he still has a high regard for the church despite it all. Um, he speaks in Roman Catholic churches and he brings out, um, he, he, he seeks to help people who have been abused and he still He's still involved with the church. He still has a, as I say, high regard for the church. And despite the public attack, he stood firm. And the the the, the bishop attacking him was subsequently revealed himself to have abused other priests. Um. So, this was a level of abuse that shocked me. It was of a scale. Because we're talking about bringing priests across in the boat from Ireland to abuse the little boys in Scotland. It's international in scale. It's huge in scale. It was clearly extensively known about within the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. It was covered up. And um, so many little boys and little girls suffered as a result. I find this difficult to understand. Um, and... Uh, that's why we're talking to Tom today. Uh, Tom, I want to welcome you to the UK call. Uh, and I would ask you to uh, perhaps start off by saying, this story is Pat McEwen's story that I've outlined to you. Is this the sort of thing that you have seen many times? Is this an outlier? Is this common? Could you just start off with a, a little comment on Pat? I would say that most of what you said uh, I've seen more times than I can count. Um, it is common, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, the cover-up, the extent of the abuse, which most normal people, they, they, they can't wrap their minds around this, especially when it comes to clergymen uh, and Roman Catholic clergymen. They can't imagine it. They can't, uh, many times, you know, the, the, they will buy into the official church's denial, one one line they used to use here was, it's only a few bad apples. No, 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 it's not a bad, few bad apples. The barrel is rotten, not just a few bare apples in it. Uh, and so the, the you have two parts of a horrific problem. One is the dysfunctional clergy who violate children, and they violate children in a horrific way that runs the spectrum from simply fondling and, and, and illicit touches to many forms of rape. And that uh, spectrum is similar to what you find in civilian society. There's no difference. Uh, the saddest part of this, however, is the other dimension of it, which is the cover-up that has been engineered <clears throat> by the leaders of the Catholic Church, by the popes and the bishops. Um, the, the sainted John Paul II, 
um, who significant segments of the Catholic Church, you know, they bow down and worship just to hear his name. He knew about this issue, and now there's evidence that he not only knew about it as Pope, but he covered up himself when he was an archbishop in Poland. Now, throughout, he was a major part of the problem and not a part of the solution. By enabling, by refusing to do anything, and by by hiding or or by protecting uh, accused bishops and priests. You have also, I think, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, a because of the research that's been done on the issue, because of the extensive litigation that's been done all over the world, by that I mean the lawsuits that have been brought forward by, by thousands and thousands of victims, have, requ- have requested or required what we in our legal system call discovery, which means that the plaintiff, the, the victims, are entitled to get the files of the defense, that's the diocese or the religious order. And there we have discovered massive amounts of information about the origin of this, the cover-up, uh, how extensive it was, um, and how, how historic it has been. Uh, and what this all does is all of the pronouncements of the church leaders, we're sorry, this will never happen again, all this sort of thing, it neutralizes all of that. Because one of the things that the the instance of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church has demonstrated clearly is how widespread it is. And I, my expertise is primarily in Roman Catholicism, but I've got been around doing this for almost 40 years. So it's spread to other areas. And I would say that the concept of sexually abusing children reaches back from my research at least to the, the the beginnings of the Roman Catholic Church, which is the first century. There's a document that's dated 98 AD that talks about this in the very infant church. And that's the beginning. And it goes down through the centuries, the cover-up, attempts by the church to punish the priests that did it, to make it go away, to stop it. But alongside of these have, has been the, the systemic cover-up by the church leaders. And the reason for that is maybe threefold. One is to protect the image of the Catholic Church, which seems to be uh, all powerful and all sacred in the minds of high-ranking churchmen and plenty of people in the church. They'll say, well, we can't let this, we can't make this public because it'll scandalize. Well, the scandal isn't making it public. The scandal is covering it up. So you have this reality of sexual abuse in the world's largest religious denomination, the oldest uh, Christian denomination. And I think that's a mirror of what's going on in in regular society, the extent of violation of children, which leads to a lot of other questions. The value of children throughout history, the value today, and the value of children, let's say, in, in centuries past, in the medieval era. Uh, they were just objects. They were used, especially uh, young adolescent boys, used for sexual pleasure. Uh, it wasn't relationships. It was just sexual pleasure by uh, various kinds of various levels of authority figures, by priests, by monks, 
And that goes back. There's evidence, solid documented evidence of that going on in the institutional Catholic Church, in monasteries especially, going back to the early period of the medieval age, which would be 4th, 5th, 6th centuries. I had no idea it went back that far. Um, the uh, the, the, the cover-up aspect of this is something that I, you know, we've come across, I've personally come across. Um, there was one case that we were, we were covering quite closely, a family called Doherty's, who, uh, a Scottish family, but uh, with um, a connection with Ireland. They, they, they came across a situation where um, they, they felt that their family was under threat from corrupt forces within Scotland. Nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, to do with what you might term the establishment. Um, they, they fled to Ireland, which turned out to be a bad mistake, and ran into problems with the authorities there. So we've got many uh, cases where organisations, in Ireland there's an organisation called Tuzla. It's got a very, very dark, um, short but dark history uh, it's meant to be there as an agency for looking after children, and it tends to be an agency for protecting abuse and abusers and uh, assaulting the rights of parents and breaking up families. It's, it's, a, it's a very strange organisation and very difficult to get a handle on because everything's, everything's done through secret courts and secrecy rules. Um, so they got into trouble there. And um, they were trying to get help from the Roman Catholic Church, and they 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 didn't. Uh, they weren't getting very far. I went to see the local, um, so the senior a senior priest in the uh, archdiocese here in Scotland um, to see if he could be of any assistance. Now. He had been their parish priest when they, when they stayed in Scotland at one point. And I knew that, but he didn't know I, know I knew that. So I described the problem and he said, well, I don't know these people. I've never heard of them. It all happened before I was in this post, so I, I can't help you. I said, well, but before you were in this post, you were their par parish priest. And then magically he could remember them, but he couldn't remember the case very well. And then I, I revealed a little bit more of the information that I knew. And then magically he could remember being in their home and, and, and the counselling he'd given them. So it was very strange to, to watch this man's lies unravel. Well, this was odd. Uh, and we've come across other situations. In the case of Pat McEwen, uh, he, he went for assistance to a lawyer in Glasgow. Uh, and wasn't getting very good service from this lawyer and eventually made a bit of a fuss and, and to get a meeting. And then the senior lawyer didn't turn up, but this other younger lawyer turned up to take the meeting with Pat. Um, Pat said he was very well versed in my case. I mean, he knew it backwards. He was, he was unbelievably well informed. And Pat asked him, could you repeat your name? And it was, a, it was an Irish name. And, and Pat said, well, are you any, are you any relationship to, to the, the head of um, 
essentially press and public relations for the Roman Catholic Church in Scotland. And, and the young lawyer said, yes, that's my father. So, uh, you know, Pat had gone to the law to try and get representation. And, and the lawyer that he ended up being assigned was the, father, was the son of the person who had actually been slandering Pat in the press. This was very strange. I mean, how many lawyers are there in Scotland? There's quite a few. What are the chances? So, you know, we see these strange things happening. Um, stra strange coincidences. Uh, people apparently being unwilling to do their job. People being unwilling to speak truthfully. And this goes down to a culture which is clearly corrupt. But it's very difficult from our perspective to understand just how corrupt. How corrupt would you say it is at the very hierarchy, speaking specifically about the Roman Catholic Church, how corrupt is it? Is there a fight back against the corruption? Is there a, is there a remnant who are, who are trying to do something about it? Is, has the corruption carried all before it? How corrupt is it? I don't think there is a, uh, a measure of the depth and the uh, disgusting nature of the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. It, it defies my imagination, and if it defies my imagination, because I'm probably one of the most cynical, it has to defy the imagination of a lot of other people. And the corruption in not only the Roman Catholic Church, but other denominations, in some, uh, it's just as bad, if not worse. Uh, I've, I've involved in this issue in a number of uh, non-Catholic denominations, and I would say that the ones who are the worst at covering up and at, at really punishing the victims themselves to intimidate them would be the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I don't know if you have them in Scotland, but we've got them over here. Uh, and the, there's some others that will, will the Hasidic Jews. Uh, there's several huge communities in New York. And if you are, if you've been violated by someone in that community, the leadership will come to your family and they will put pressure on, a lot of pressure, not to say anything. And there have been instances in the community in New York City, in, in the Brooklyn area, actually, where there were a couple of rabbis who uh, wanted to blow the whistle. They, they found this to be disgustingly immoral, and they wanted to blow the whistle. One of them was attacked and had acid thrown in his face. Now, the threats that in, that goes on because the people, the lay people in the Roman Catholic Church, let's say, many of them are severely threatened by this issue of sexual abuse of children by the clergy. And the reason, I believe, and I had been, a, you know, it had actually, had I stayed in the priesthood, uh, today I would have been ordained 53 years. So I have a little bit of knowledge about how it works. And one of the things about the clergy, for the most part, you know, just about all of them, clergymen are held up, they're put on a, on a pedestal, they're held up to be all holy, they are the intermediary between you, me, and, and the unseen gods. So in the Catholic Church, people are raised to believe that their salvation in the afterlife depends on 
the clergy, the bishops and the priests. And we have taught them not to ask any questions. We'll give you the answers. We'll tell you how to do everything. We'll, we'll, so Roman Catholics generally have been infantilized. They've been treated like children as far as their spiritual life is concerned. And they have not been allowed to make decisions. And if they have, they've been criticized if the decisions don't comport with what the, what the hierarchy wants or what the clergy wants. So when you introduce the reality that the priests, that they depended on, that they were taught never to question, to totally believe, when these guys suddenly are found to have feet of clay, that's a major threat to a lot of Roman Catholics and I believe believers in other denominations, because that means now I have to take responsibility for my own religious or spiritual life. I can't depend on somebody else. I've got to take responsibility for that. And when you're talking about religion, you're talking about the unknown. Now, whether you believe in a personal God with a beard and all that sort of thing or not, there's always been of some sort of fear of the unknown, and that enables religious people who want to find found their own cult to start it. People will buy into that. They can be controlled by fear of the unknown. So you've got in the Roman Catholic Church, there probably, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, there is sexual abuse, has been and probably is, by clergy and religious. Now, by when I use the word religious, I mean members of religious orders, monks, nuns, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, we've got plenty of them all over the place. Scotland and England is filled with, with former monasteries. So you've got this, this blanket, you know, and throughout history, this, this has been going on. Um, and now you've got people that have been trained to believe every word of this as if it's coming out of the mouth of God. And they're threatened. They're seriously threatened. And that threat very often translates into anger. Anger at the victims and anger at those who defend the victims and help the victims because they are making the threat worse. Uh, they are causing our insecurity to become even more insecure. And as this has developed, and it all started, the, the, well, the sexual abuse basically started in the Catholic Church in the first century. But the public knowledge of it in our era began in uh, a diocese in the south of the United States called Lafayette, 1982. That's when I first became involved. And what I've seen since I've been involved in this is, is the, the, the institution, namely the leadership, the bishops and the popes, have done everything they could to cover it up, to minimize it, to control it. And they've not been able to do that because the power and the anger of the victims is far, far more than anyone ever imagined. And they've gotten themselves into the civil courts throughout the world. Uh, and that is the one arena that churches can't overcome and control are the civil courts. And so that has made this issue known uh, because of what has been discovered. Now, I started to say that Roman Catholicism, you will, wherever you find it established, with clergy, you're going to find some evidence or history of sexual abuse of children, boys and girls. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has its 
roots has has feet in in well almost every country on the globe. There's three or four countries that do not have any uh, Catholic clergy there that we know of. Maybe Bhutan, I think, being one, Nepal. But if there's a clergy that's been established there, you can bet that there's been sexual abuse. And what's happened over the past maybe eight to ten years has been other countries in, in, in areas where the church has been profoundly powerful, Latin America, some areas of sub-Saharan Africa, where this is now starting to come to the surface. The people are overcoming their fear, and it's being replaced with their anger. And the anger is promoting something to be done. We've got to do something about this. We have to challenge the institution, challenge the bishops, and help the victims. But this has to stop. And that's going on all over the world now. And there are organizations that were founded, um, two big ones in the United States, that represent victims all over the place. So to try to minimize it and say it's just a temporary problem is lunacy. Uh, it's as much a temporary problem as as, uh, as cancer or the common cold. The story that uh, Pat McCune told, sorry, I, I misspoke earlier, it's not smiling, that's actually a different um, scandalous institution to do with the Roman Catholic Church in Scotland. It's near Symington. It was Coodham House, which was a retreat uh, run by the Passionist Order um, within the Roman Catholic Church. And um, they had, uh, as part of their sort of network, um, a, a, a retreat or a, a centre in England uh, where uh, priests who abused children went to be rehabilitated or treated in some way. So th there was certainly a, a very obvious knowledge of, of at least some of the scale of the problem, and there was some attempt to do something about it. But this was just essentially churned. They would go to this place for a while, and then they would be back in a parish somewhere, and very often the abuse would continue. Um, the, there is a pushback, and there is, fortunately now, people are finding a voice and being able to say much more about what happened to them. Um, there has not been any, any real admission of the scale of it, though, by the, by the very highest people in the church hierarchy. As you've delved into the files and you've been involved in, in, in court cases and expert witness and all the rest of it, um, do you have, um, how, how would you summarize the very top levels of, of, of the, 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 the bishops and the, 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 the people who run the Roman Catholic Church? How are they interacting with the problem? How are they covering up? What's the mechanism? What's the, do you have a handle on, on their justification? How do they live with themselves, I suppose, is what I'm asking. How do they see this? How do they rationalise it? How do they go on and not do the right thing and not protect the children? Have you got any handle for, handle on, on, on the mindset, on the, on the worldview that actually generates and perpetuates this abuse? I think I do. Um, 
let me just say that the Roman Catholic Church is not one. It's an international operation with, and it has a different identity in different countries. And so you'll find there are certain strains of similarity, though, that run through the entire hierarchy, the bishops. There's 1.15 billion Catholics in the world. And there are about 4,800, 4,800 bishops to run this show. Now, the Catholic Church is a monarchy. It has what's called a hierarchical governmental system. So there are no commissions or senates or anything of that nature that can get together and overcome by legislation uh, what's going on. We have no checks and balances. So one common strain, I think, in all of the hierarchy, wherever you go, begins with denial. This can't be happening. It can't be that bad. And then you move from denial to cover-up. And it's to control it and cover it up. And if they can't totally cover it up, you try to control it as much as possible. Uh, so that's that's very common. That's been going on continuously all through this. And And I would say from my experience, which is pretty intense and uh, long-lasting, that the bishops in general still don't get it. They don't comprehend how horrific it is for especially a, a, an organized religion, the Catholic religion, that has a fairly stringent moral code as far as sexuality is concerned. In the Catholic Church, uh, it's taught that Every kind of sex is a mortal sin. It gets you a life term in hell, except the sex that happens between married people. Now, we know how unrealistic that is, but that's, so people see that. And then you see the reality of the fact that priests who are preaching this are violating the most vulnerable members of the, of the community, children. And this violation of children can get, get really sordid. Uh, and I have been involved as a, as a consultant and as an expert witness in more cases than I can count. And that goes into the thousands all over the world. And I can tell you that some of the examples would 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 cause your blood to either boil or freeze. Uh, one example, and I won't give you a lot, was a priest in Canada who died in prison. But when they finally started uncovering what he had done, he was what's called a true pedophile. He only was attracted to prepubescent girls. And he had engaged in full sexual intercourse, or the attempt to do it, with about 130 girls who were prepubescent, the youngest being five. Now, look at the damage, and you multiply that throughout the world. Uh, so you've got a significant amount. Now, the bishops... Uh, when first off, they're all celibate. None of them have been parents, and none of them had probably been in, in really healthy, intimate relationships. So, if you're not a parent, never been one, you fail to comprehend the notion of how a parent wants to protect his or her child, and that when something like this happens to your child, no matter how religious you are, how churchy you are, how much you give. You're going to change quickly, and you're going to defend that child no matter who it is that you're defending him against. So the, the clergy, the, the hierarchy, and many of the clergy still don't comprehend the horror 
of this issue. The, the collateral damage. They don't understand that once you are sexually violated, that doesn't go away. Uh, I, I was at a court session with Bishop years ago, and he was asked about one of his priests who had sexually violated a hundred and some kids. And he said, well, what do you think, what, Bishop, what, what do you think should be done for these children who are now young adults? So the bishop said, and this is one of the most idiotic things I've ever heard said in my life. Little boys heal. And that was, he said something about something he knew absolutely nothing about, presuming that these little boys are going to, but they don't heal. They don't heal. Uh, little girls don't heal. And adolescent boys and girls don't heal. And oftentimes adult children, adult people, men and women, who are sexually violated don't. Talk to a woman who's been raped. Is she all over it after a few years? No, it's still there. Same thing with men, uh, priests or, or adult men who've been raped somewhere or other. So that issue, that that uh, the inability or the unwillingness, and I think it's a combination of both, to really comprehend this issue and take the radical steps that need to be taken to see about the institutional dimension of it and see what you can do to reduce that. Because as we've learned, it's, it's, it's rife in institutions, and the institution itself enables the, the violators and covers for them and lies for them. And you mentioned the word lying. Um, common saying in the United States, about those of us who are deeply involved in this, is that if, you, if, you're, if a bishop's lips are moving, presume he's lying about this issue, maybe about other things too, but they have lied and they continue to lie under oath in court, um, in public speaking about this and have been doing so since it was all uncovered in the 80s. So that's still going on. Now, I think uh, when you do find an acknowledgement of it and some, something, some of them trying to do something about it, it's because they have been pressured uh, by the media by the courts and by the victims themselves. So when the church would say, look at all we've done to protect children, to help children, that's fine. You've done it because you were forced to do it and had the victims and their lawyers not mounted up, you know, a couple of decades ago and went after this aggressively. And had there not been a few fearless members of the clergy who stood up and defended the victims, we would still today be back where we were in 1951. This would still be buried, and there would be walking wounded all over the place. People that you and I both know, our friends, our family, who are deeply troubled, uh, deeply into alcoholism, substance abuse of some sort, psychological problems, PTSD, and totally afraid to ever disclose why it's there. There's an organization in Scotland who, who, that I'm, I work with um, called the Fresh Start Foundation, which deals with and tries to assist. Uh, victims of uh, of childhood sexual abuse, and uh, the early days of that is that we're establishing where to actually find these uh, the victims. Uh, it became clear that when it came to men, uh, the jails of the country were one place, um, and when it came to women, infertility clinics because this, the physical damage um, to to little girls is just so great they end up in later life having problems uh, conceiving. Um, and of course, 
various um, forms of, uh, of of problems with mental health are all also very common because the the effects um, are just so long lasting. In Pat's case, it was alcoholism, and Alcoholics Anonymous was a was a was a big um, step forward for him personally. And he now speaks at AA meetings, and very often that when he when he when he speaks, people will come up to him later on and quietly say, I'm in the same position, you know, I, I, I was abused, and I think this is why I have a problem with alcohol as well. Um, a, a couple of questions before we move on to some of the some of your experiences with, um, with, with court cases and with, with inquiries. Um, as I interacted with with people like Pat and saw how he was being treated by the higher echelons of the Roman Catholic clergy. I, I, and as I interacted with other people within the Roman Catholic Church, um, I walked, I came away from that thinking, well, actually, I quite like the Roman Catholic laity. They tend to fight for things they believe in. They tend to stand up for the innocent, where um, maybe the, the Church of Scotland, for example, in, in, in my own country, might be much more passive. So I was quite impressed with the Roman Catholic laity. Um, and my view of the Roman Catholic clergy was it's a sewer. And am I, is, is that a reasonable, some, one question for you, is that, is that a reasonable summary? And one of the other bits of information that I was given is that um, the seminaries, as, as they're bringing people into the clergy now, um, are tremendously uh, dominated by, by, by homosexuals. So you're not seeing people who have selected uh, a life of celibacy. You, you, you're actually seeing a, a very active uh, gay culture establishing itself within the Roman Catholic clergy, notwithstanding the official church line on homosexuality. Um, so I would, next question is, is, is that true? Um, so yeah, uh, 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 these little snippets of, 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 of uh, data that I've, I've taken away from uh, various interactions with this problem. Am I right? Am I wrong? You're very insightful. You're very insightful because you're right. Um, and, and everything basically that you said, uh, going back to, you know, how do we find the victims? One thing I've noticed, you know, more and more are coming forward now, depending on the country and on the area. But whenever there is a documentary like shown on TV that's done by an independent source, whenever there's a series in the newspapers done by an independent source, that uncovers this, it always enables a number of victims to overcome their fear and come forward. And every time that has happened, and I've been involved in 35 or 40 documentaries, that has been one of the results. But uh, you mentioned, where do you find them? On the street, in hospitals, you, you, you said it, that, that many of them are suffering. They, they can't, they don't know how to live a normal life because they've been so damaged, uh, the, the rate of suicide is, is very high uh, among, among victims. 
the amount of, of uh, substance abuse. Um, historically, in my experience, the, the institutional church has paid more attention to providing some sort of medical help or psychological help to the perpetrators, to the, the clergy, than to the victims. They'll offer the victims, well, well, we'll pay for three or four sessions with a psychiatrist for you. That ain't going to cut it. You need a lot more than that. You need five or ten years. Um, but the the other um, dimension, I think, that you mentioned, um, you know, where the victims are, um, the 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 response now of the of the laity has radically changed. I think for many in the Catholic Church that I've seen, they are no longer buying the issue that we have to be subservient sheep and keep our mouths shut because the priests and the bishops know everything. They're they're going in the exact opposite direction, uh, and they're challenging. And the 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 if you see not popularity polls, but uh, polls done professionally in the United States, probably elsewhere, on this issue, the credibility level of the clergy is at the bottom. I mean, people will, will, will believe used car salesmen and vampires before. And, and the reason it's there is because of the reaction to this issue, um, rather than react and and unfortunately, the negative, defensive, denial reaction has only continued. They haven't, as a group, come up and said, we were wrong. We did this. We caused this. We covered it up. We messed this thing up. We've caused so much damage, and we are sorry, and we are going to start to do the right thing to change it. That's not going to happen. Because that means the system that supports these clergymen is going to crumble. And that's one of the major, major fears. If I, you know, I, step out and I really go out to the, to the people and I offer to help them in any way I can, as a bishop, let's say, and I give, start giving them money, pretty soon the money we got is going to be gone. And then we'll have to start selling buildings, which is actually going on through the courts. Um, it's more important to have people than a bunch of buildings. Because the church is people, it's not buildings. And um, the church is people. It's not a, a political organization with influence and power. If you get involved in any way with the Roman Catholic Church, you're dealing with a medieval culture. It's still there. It's still there. If we could um, have a chat about your experience with the Royal Commission in Australia. Um, we've got um, a rather dysfunctional inquiry into child sexual abuse, institutional child sexual abuse going on in England and Wales. We've got an even more dysfunctional one going on in Scotland, uh, where political interference uh, basically caused all of the people running the inquiry to resign. People who seemed to be genuine and seemed to be uh, in pursuit of the truth, and they all had to leave. They were essentially hounded out by John Swinney, um, we know which politician did the hounding. Um, and his career didn't seem to suffer from this, which, which surprised me greatly and disappointed me greatly. Um, and that, that inquiry is moving very slowly and information comes out extremely gradually. And it seems to be 
a management of the shocking information because if it all came out at once, uh, I suspect the reaction of the people in Britain would be, well, the authorities who rule over us will rule over us no more because this is so appalling that they have given up any rights to have any authority over us whatsoever. There was in the politicians genuine fear uh, when, the, when this information started to come out um, that the, the public reaction would be dramatic, possibly violent, and certainly final. Um, so inquiries were set up and information has been controlled. Information can, flow has been controlled. And it's not succeeded in actually uh, getting at what the problem is. Um, and this pattern has been seen in many other countries as well, but not, as far as I can tell, in Australia. The Royal Commission in Australia seemed to do it right. It seemed to have um, open public um, inquiry into what had actually gone on. It seemed to um, find out things. It seemed to communicate that clearly in a public forum. Um, it, it seemed, as a somewhat distant and an occasional observer, from my point of view, it seemed to be truly excellent. Um, am I overstating that? Is, was, it, was it a success? Uh, you had some involvement in it, is that right? I think it was a success on many levels. And I think what you, you brought something up, it would be really interesting if an outsider, completely objective, with open doors, to study why, deeply study why the commissions in Great Britain, uh, Scotland, I, uh, Scotland and England, uh, have been stalled. Now I can vouch for it because I was c contacted to assist in in both situations, and then all of a sudden it disappeared. Uh, not so in Australia. Why it, it, it happened, I, I, I don't know, because I think that would have mean a study of the Australian people, of the governmental system. But I do know there was a there was a policeman from New, uh, from the state of Victoria who blew the whistle on some of this stuff and really got things going um, back in the 1225 or 2010 or something like that. Uh, there was a, a state inquiry in the state of Victoria, and then the the uh, governor general declared there would be a, an inquiry for the whole country. What they did, they didn't hold back. They they put up the resources that were necessary, and they had people dealing with it who knew exactly what they were doing. They didn't do what you can easily do if you're a, an organizational leader and you have a commission doing something. You can pack the deck with idiots who aren't going to do anything about what the real issue is. They didn't do that in Australia. They 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 went after this issue every right to the depth. I've got the full the full report is fifteen volumes long, and the report has been subdivided into catholic church different they, they they went after every institution except i think the government but they 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 examined every private institution every church and they found of course which wasn't surprising to me that the institution that had the most uh, 
abuse, the most abusers, and the highest rate of cover-up was the Roman Catholic Church, more so than all the other denominations combined. And then they began in their conclusions issuing, they said, this is what you guys got to do to change this. And they, they were not afraid to come up with things. They weren't afraid that, well, we're going to offend the church. Um, we're, we're, we're going to lose our influence with the church. They, they, they didn't seem to be afraid of that at all. I was present when some archbishops were questioned in the commission, and they did not gain an inch. Uh, they, the, the questioners were not at all afraid or fearful, or they didn't show any deference. They were out for information. And these were the guys that had the information. So the, the commission went on. It went very deep. Um, it attracted a lot of attention. It brought a lot of people out of the woodwork that came forward to talk, that, that told their stories. Uh, the, the articles and the analyses that were done by the experts that the commission engaged with are brilliant. Uh, I've got most of that uh, accumulated myself. And it's an incredible collection of information just about the issue itself, because they went into it from every angle you can imagine. Uh, and I think, as I said, it's beyond the gold standard. And if every country did something like that, you'd find some and significant changes happened in Australia because of what the, the, the commission did. And that's what you want. You want to have changes that's going to enable the victims to come forward, but also that it's going to do something about those who cover it up, who hide it. You said that the, the Roman Catholic Church basically had more abuse than all the, all the rest combined. Um, and understanding the reasons for that, we've, we've talked about the position of the priest in, in uh, Roman Catholic belief as an intermediary between God and, 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 and man, which is obviously not reproduced in other religions in the same way um, as, as one of the issues. Is, um, is the idea of celibacy or the principle of celibacy, is that a driving factor as well? Um, and also, I understand that celibacy wasn't originally part of Roman Catholic doctrine and it came in later. Um, is that correct? And um, also, I've also been told, don't know if this is correct, I've also been told that the driving factor in bringing celibacy in was to prevent uh, assets leaving the church because if the priests had no family, they tended to leave all of their goods uh, and belongings to the church itself, not to their children. So it was, it, it, could you maybe give me an indication of whether that's true or not? Was it actually, was, was celibacy brought in because of cash rather than the general explanation, which is uh, celibate priesthood um, gives all of their attention to the flock and not to their own personal lives and families. Um, so yeah, is it, what could you say a little bit about the history of celibacy in the Roman Catholic Church and to what extent do you think it is um, a core reason as to why it's so bad in the Roman Catholic Church as opposed to uh, as opposed to some of the other denominations. Yeah, I can. I think uh, the reasons why it was in, it was basically uh, the bishops, the leadership of the church tried to introduce celibacy gradually, going back to maybe the 7th or 8th century. And uh, the reason, one of the reasons was cash. But another reason was a kind of a twisted spirituality 
because the attitude toward human sexuality that the church inherited from the what we call the early church fathers, St. Augustine and those guys, was very twisted and bizarre. And so they bought into, a lot of them bought into this and tried to impose this on, on clergy because the idea was that if you ever do anything sexual, it's terribly wrong, terribly sinful, and it's, it's going to, it's like polluting yourself. And so they had rules. Priests that were married weren't allowed to say mass if they had had sex with their wife the night before. And there was a lot of crazy things that happened in the course of uh, trying to make it uh, obligatory. And it became obligatory in the 11th century for the whole church. You know, all the, the boy, the, the, the statement was if you're a priest and you're celibate, you can't be married validly. Cut from there to now. What part does celibacy have to do with this? A lot of people believe that since priests are celibate, have to be, that they're going to turn to other uh, avenues for sexual satisfaction, namely children. That's not true. That's not true at all. Uh, a lot of celibate priests uh, do find other outlets, that's for sure. But being attracted and having sexual uh, environment and involvement with children is a sexual, dis it's a psychosexual disorder. It's not normal for an adult, 40, 50-year-old man, to be sexually excited by a 13-year-old boy. Um, plenty of them are. But without getting into psychology, the, the, the part that celibacy plays into that, I think, is this. Priests are trained traditionally and still to some extent. They're isolated. They're trained in seminaries. They're basically trained in a, an environment where there is no feminine influence whatsoever. No women, nothing. Uh, and so they're also taught that sex and sexuality is something you have to avoid for the rest of your life because it's, it's part and parcel of your vocation to be a priest. Well, that's nonsense. Celibacy is not a part of Catholic doctrine. It's not essential to be a priest. There are Eastern Rite priests in the Roman Catholic Church that are married with kids. The Orthodox, most, you know, ministers are, are married. So the, the celibate, having being, being freed up to give total time to your flock, that's even more nonsensical. Because some of the most selfish people I've ever met in my life are celibate Catholic priests because you don't, you don't learn how to be unselfish by being a father and a husband. And that's, I think, where you really learn it. Uh, you can't be. If you're going to be a good husband and a good father, you can't be selfish. You know, you've got, you got to put your wife and your kids first. And so the preparation for celibacy, teaching clergy that sex is wrong, it's evil, not, not, there's no preparation, real good preparation, for being a celibate. All you do is you're told it's a sin, don't do it, you'll go to hell. And so it's an unnatural state. Now, there are some men that do ch choose to be celibate, and they're fine, it's fine. They choose it, they can do it, but if you're forced into doing it, and you're told this is a requirement to be a priest. If you don't do this, you can't be a priest. Well, a lot of us in the old days, just we took it for granted. We were told everything's going to be fine. Now, a lot of us in the order I was in had been through college first. So, and we didn't go to a seminary college. We went to a real college. <coughs> and so a lot of the, you know, a lot of, a lot of priests enter the priesthood. They start when they're 12 in the seminary. They're never given a chance to truly mature. The, the, the most formative years of their life are taken away from them, and they're replaced with total control 
mind control, body control, everything else. And they emerge, uh, you know, young adolescents in an adult body. And one, one priest who I thought was very insightful, he was a psychologist, said the Roman Catholic Church has the greatest number, the most highly educated collection of 14-year-olds on the planet, equating the emotional, psychological age of so many priests with you know, young adolescents. And I can say from my own experience, the maturity level of priests is generally lower than their contemporaries in the outside world. So this is all wrapped up with this nonsense about celibacy. You have to have celibacy. You have to um, be pure. Well, people aren't buying that anymore. I mean, the seminaries that are producing a significant by significant numbers of priests, I mean, it's peanuts compared to what it was 50 years ago. But they're producing young men who are terrifying because they're highly conservative. They're, they're, they're immature. They, they like walking around in the robes and, and taking, having all the old-fashioned rituals and everything else. Um, and they believe, they truly believe that as a priest, I'm a sacred person. I'm, I'm, I've got a, a, an imprint on my soul that makes me different than everybody else. Well, we were all taught that, but a number of us never believed it. Uh, thank God, because if you believe that, it's going to have an impact on your ministry. You're going to believe you're better than other people, that you are on a pedestal, and you should be treated with honor. There's a psychiatrist, psychologist, a Jewish psychologist who has treated a number of priests over the years with this issue, as well as victims. And he made a statement in an interview in 2004 that the kind of sexual abuse between Catholic priests and their victims is probably one of the worst kinds, even more more harmful than incest. Because, as you said, Catholics are taught that the priest takes the place of God. Protestants aren't taught that, and Jews aren't taught that, and other denominations aren't taught that. The priest or the minister or the rabbi is there, he's a religious leader, but he's not God's immediate representative. So the fear and the... the, the uh, inconsequential, nonsensical uh, feeling of awe in front of these guys is simply not there. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And having been there, I would definitely say there is. I'm a priest, you know. You can't question me. You can't argue with me. You can't hurt me or insult me because I'm a priest. Yeah. Tom, it's, it's been it's been fascinating listening to you. I've, I've really, I've really enjoyed your your insightful analysis and and all of the knowledge and and years of experience you bring to this subject and the courage with which you speak. So, um, I want to I want to thank you very much for talking to us today. There is, of course, much more um, to say about this. There's many things I I haven't asked, um, and there are many areas, including the issue into Judaism and the and the Jehovah's Witnesses that, that, that we could and should go, and perhaps we can do that on another occasion. Uh, but for today, as, as we finish, is there anything else you would like to say in, in summary that, uh, that I might have missed, a, any sort of important point that you would like to end on? First off, I want to thank you and your, your, uh, your colleagues for, for doing this, for, for making this, this uh, presentation possible. Not because of me, but because what you're doing is you're passing, you're sending information out there that people are going to pick up, and inevitably you're going to liberate some victims from their cocoons of fear. 
they're going to come forward. That's the biggest success. And that's where I have the greatest respect for the media, the printed media and electronic media. Uh, your questions were insightful. You got to the real ones, the, the important ones. The, the biggest ones are the biggest one is the cover up, the, the, the leadership's inability and unwillingness to grasp the seriousness of this issue and have the courage to stand up no matter what it may cost uh, and, and defend the victims. That's a major part of the problem. But I'm grateful. Um, you, you asked some really good questions. Uh, I was I'm privileged to be able to have, have been able to, to share my experience, right, wrong, or in the middle, but it's, it's there. I've been there, and I, I just, my life has been devoted to helping victims, and it will continue to be so. Thank you. Well, Tom, thank you for that. Uh, until next time, goodbye.